sophistication of the Taliban's outreach capabilities far exceeds those of ISIS. We don't see as much of it in the media, but that's because the Taliban isn't beheading people and making videos about those beheadings that are meant to be consumed by Western audiences. It's much more insular, it's much more focused on what's happening in Afghanistan. Hi, I'm Anna Krana. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to season two of our podcast. In this episode, we're finding out how the Taliban has used social media, both in the build-up to the takeover of Afghanistan in August 2021, and since it's been in power as the government. We'll compare this to wider terrorist use of the internet and explore the implications for tech companies moderating this content. Afghanistan's been caught up in conflict and war for decades, with the US-led military intervention in 2001, which removed the Taliban from power, failing to bring peace to the country. Since then, the Taliban, a fundamentalist Islamist group, has regrouped and grown into an insurgency-fighting Western-backed Afghan government forces. For most of the last 20 years, the US has provided essential support to the Afghan government and Afghan National Army. But in April 2021, US President Joe Biden announced that all American forces would leave by September. Taliban insurgents used a mixture of rapid assaults, bargains with local commanders, online propaganda and psychological warfare as they took over cities with little resistance, some with barely a shot fired, eventually capturing the capital, Kabul. Colin P. Clark is the director of research and a senior research fellow at the Sufan Group. We spoke to him to discuss how the takeover advanced more quickly than anyone could have predicted. You know, the word swift is always what I think about when I, I think back to, you know, those couple of weeks this summer where like a bunch of dominoes city by city, town by town fell to the Taliban. And you essentially had the Afghan national security forces kind of melting away. Um, in reality, this has been taking place for quite some time. You know, if you want to have a sense of how poor U.S. intelligence is, while we still had troops in the country, we didn't know that this was happening. We had very little understanding of uh, the kind of behind the scene dynamics. And, and you know, what was this motivated by? Clear signaling on the part of the United States that we weren't going to stick around. And so none of this really is surprising, given the messaging and the narratives coming out of the United States of, you know, we're we're going to withdraw and the Afghans are on their own. Chances are you read articles, watched news reports, or saw information about the takeover on your social media channels. But that coverage barely scratched the surface of the different methods the Taliban used to take control of an entire country so quickly. I want to bring in Arthur Bradley, who's an open source intelligence or OSINT analyst at Tech Against Terrorism. He analyzes publicly available information on the internet to assess terrorist and violent extremist material online. Arthur explains how the Taliban used social media as a tool in the months leading up to the takeover of Kabul last August. Yeah, so the Taliban really used social media uh, primarily in the run-up to the takeover to criticize or undermine the legitimacy of the Afghan government and simultaneously praise the Taliban's achievements 
So it was a shift in focus from official Taliban communications in recent years, and essentially that it's, it's propaganda that had traditionally been focused on its military operations, kind of gradually shifting to communications focused on governance uh, and the Taliban's kind of capability to govern. I think also worth noting that Taliban accounts uh, were also challenging intentionally the West's perception of them uh, as being intolerant and violent. And so, the, you know, the intended audience for this communications was definitely international, not just domestic to Afghanistan. So messaging essentially trying to put across a gentler image of the Taliban. Uh, and this is in contrast to their previous reign of Afghanistan in, in the 90s. So, for example, you know, uh, spokespeople were putting out instructions for Taliban fighters that, you know, no one's allowed to enter anyone's house without permission, forbidding the harm of life, property and honour of the Afghan uh, population as the Taliban was advancing. Of course, panic ensued uh, as the Taliban took over Kabul. But in terms of the kind of platforms it was using, you know, it was running an emergency hotline on WhatsApp for civilians to essentially report instances of violence, uh, looting or other problems uh, to the Taliban. This was terminated by WhatsApp. Also, plenty of reports of the Taliban kind of operating via WhatsApp in other ways. So essentially was using it as a way of enabling contact between the Taliban and local populations under Taliban control. Charlie Winter is the director of Extrac, an organization that tracks the real-time communications data of a range of violent extremist organizations, including the Taliban. As a leading expert in this area, he gives us an insight into how the Taliban's use of social media has evolved and become one of its main communications tools. Across much of 2021, we saw the Taliban increasingly using Twitter as a place for its officials to get together, publish content, issue statements, publish videos of defections of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces and so on. And that's really where we see the Taliban today. So there's this reliance on Twitter as the kind of central focal point for outreach, online outreach from the Taliban to both Afghans and the rest of the world. And that's interesting because, I mean, Twitter is widely used in Afghanistan, but it's not that widely used. Facebook's a lot more important, but the Taliban is kind of forced to use Twitter because Facebook has quite a harsh policy in relation to not allowing Taliban officials to use the the platform to publish statements or videos or whatnot. So that's the main thing that we've seen, this kind of reversion to Twitter. And it's, it's kind of the opposite sort of dynamic to that which has characterized a lot of other violent extremist use of the internet over the course of the last decade, where we've seen generally organizations like ISIS or Al-Qaeda has moved away from mainstream platforms like Twitter and onto more closed platforms like Telegram. So it's been a really interesting thing to to, to follow and, and analyze with time. As Charlie says, different terrorist groups use online platforms to spread their message in different ways. And when it comes to the Taliban, Twitter is at the heart of its PR campaign. I mean, in contrast to groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, the really interesting thing with the Taliban is that the people behind this are all hanging out on Twitter and they identify as people who are running the shop on Twitter. So it's a handful of people. I mean, as with any sort of insurgent media infrastructure, there's a a few different things that are required. So you need kind of a a visionary leadership, individuals who really kind of intuitively understand the narrative landscape in which they're operating or the influence landscape within which they're operating. 
But then you also need the the capabilities, the people with cameras, the equipment, the editorial expertise, the copy editors and, and, and all that stuff. And even before the fall of Kabul, the Taliban had all of that. What it's been able to do now is to take the pre-existing structures and resources that it had and then reapply them in a much more free setting where it has access to better equipment, has access to... I mean, when it took over the Bakhtar news agencies. Twitter feed or radio te- television Afghanistan's Twitter feeds, it immediately took control of uh, accounts that had hundreds of thousands of followers between them on Twitter. These are people that were following anti-Taliban messaging just days earlier. And then those same accounts were being used to publish pro-Taliban content. It's 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 a really, really weird situation. But it's it's based on years of doing this under the radar and having people who have an intuitive grasp of, of, of what they're doing. And I mean, I spent a lot of the last 10 years or so trying to understand how this has operated in the context of, of ISIS, how these same dynamics have panned out. But I mean, sophistication of the Taliban's outreach capabilities just far exceeds those of ISIS. Um, yeah, we don't see as much of it in the media, but that's because the Taliban isn't beheading people uh, and making videos about those beheadings that are meant to be consumed by Western audiences. It's much more insular. It's much more focused on what's happening in Afghanistan. But in terms of the content that it's able to produce, the production quality of the videos, the uh, staging of the scenes that it shoots photographs of or videos of, the magazines, the translation, the rate of content production, the complexity and and variance of of narrative, all of those things are really quite staggering when you get into the weeds of them. I mean, it's clear that this is all happening on the back of of many years of building an institutional capability and organisational understanding of of how insurgency and communication work together. And I think that's the, 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 the fruits of what we're seeing now. The Taliban's media campaign has become increasingly sophisticated in recent years. But Charlie says that shift didn't happen overnight. So for years and years and years prior to the fall of Kabul in August, the Taliban's principal point of outreach to the rest of the world was the Voice of Jihad, which is a network of websites that had an English version, a Pashto version, Arabic version, Dari version, and an Urdu version as well. All of them would publish under the same branding. It would be unified and they would be responsible for releasing official statements and videos and magazines and so on and so forth. Those websites still operate, but in a much reduced capacity. And that was something which was apparent in the days that followed the fall of Kabul on the 15th of August. So these websites that had been hyperactive, they're static sites, not Twitter pages or things like that. They've been hyperactive and getting increasingly active in the run-up to the fall of Kabul. And then when Kabul was taken over by the Taliban, immediately they went silent. And there was a surge of activity on Twitter. And there was also a reordering of the Taliban's media infrastructure. And this is the thing that's responsible for this big dramatic shift. Uh, This reordering saw the people that had been running the Alamara network, the Voice of Jihad, saw them transitioning into positions within Afghanistan's state media infrastructure. So things like the Bakhtar News Agency, Radio Television Afghanistan, there's a Pashto version and Dari version for that, as well as a whole array of other media outlets. But 
this is the Taliban communicating as the Taliban, but of course the Taliban now is the government of Afghanistan. So we have the kind of old characteristic content from the voice of jihad still emerges. There's still video producers like Al-Hidret Studios, which produce this very doctrinally driven ideological content that, that isn't really that far removed from what we've seen across most of the last couple of decades. But then you also have a huge amount more governance-focused and policy-focused materials that are coming up through the Bakhtar News Agency. And it really is fascinating to see this really speedy transition of what was an insurgent media infrastructure into this kind of incumbent media structure, this state media apparatus that that actually really was quite a smooth transformation. And it's rare that you see that kind of thing happening because it's rare that insurgencies are actually successful. And he argues that the Taliban's audience has evolved too. Increasingly, the Taliban has been trying to communicate in a, a more kind of objective and quote unquote moderate way with the rest of the world, both publics and policymakers, as it's trying to frame itself as a legitimate governing authority for Afghanistan that is representative of Afghanistan and the array of ethnicities and religious groups that live in Afghanistan. You do still have that very doctrinal ideological rhetoric coming out from the organisation. You do still have WhatsApp groups, Telegram groups. Also, Twitter has that live chat function some really quite hardline conversations that are being had between Taliban supporters there that are reflective of these broader factional disputes within the Taliban at large anyway. That stuff is all still happening. But when it comes to the official face of the Taliban, the day-to-day content that it's publishing, that has, has changed quite a lot. And that reflects the expansion of the audiences that it was communicating with because the the Taliban's goal now is to use these materials to use its diplomatic forays as well in places like Qatar but also uh, the Moscow summit last year and so on to try to get more out of the international community to get recognition to get access to its national reserve to be able to do something to try to allay the, the dire humanitarian situation in Afghanistan now so it does have a different strategy and it, it's trying to to do something fundamentally different to what it has been doing for the previous 20 years if you imagine that as an insurgency like basically in all insurgencies when they're engaging in outreach they're trying to or producing propaganda they're trying to agitate the people a population their community their in-group against the government that they're fighting against Now the Taliban is incumbent. It is the government. So instead of agitating against the government, it's trying to push for those same people, as well as its former adversaries, to come together to support it. And that's a profound reordering of of priorities and something that's really, really difficult to do. And I would say that I've been quite surprised at how... Well, I hesitate to say well, because I don't think the Taliban has necessarily succeeded in doing it, but it has been a very smooth transition. I mentioned this earlier, the transition away from insurgent towards more typical state media practices. That has been a smooth transition. Whether it's being bought by the people who need to buy it remains to be seen. Now, to complicate matters further, the Taliban isn't the only violent Islamist group operating in Afghanistan. 
You may recall on the 26th of August 2021, as thousands of civilians and foreigners were trying to flee Afghanistan, a bomb went off at Kabul airport, killing 183 people. But this wasn't a Taliban attack. ISK, or Islamic State the Khorasan province, a local affiliate of Islamic State, claims responsibility. As Colin explains, the Islamic State has a long-standing rivalry with the Taliban. In terms of ISK, you're well aware of the rivalry with the Taliban. The situation's now flipped. The Taliban are counterinsurgents, for, for lack of a better term, as strange as it sounds to call them that. They're the sitting government. And ISK are the upstart insurgent group waging warfare through asymmetric tactics. You know, I don't see them qualitatively or quantitatively being able to overwhelm the Taliban, but they can certainly remain a serious thorn in the side of the Taliban for the foreseeable future. We'll come back to Colin in a moment, but first, I'm going to let Arthur from Tech Against Terrorism explain how an attack such as the one we saw at Kabul airport is actually claimed by the Islamic State. The process starts on something called a beacon channel. This is kind of the centralized location or the primary source for where terrorist content is produced by these terrorist organizations. So most often that will be a channel or a group on a messaging app, but it might also be kind of pages on social media. And in the case of, you know, you mentioned the IS uh, claim for the attack in Kabul, but this is really kind of a process for all IS claims, um, you know, several several every day, really. I, I'd kind of break this down into four stages. You know, first is this is this claim appearing on, on the Beacon channel. So this is IS's centralized media outlet. And in the case of this claim, it's, an, it's a claim from IS Khorasan, but it comes via IS's central media outlet. So it's the same channel that you get for claims from all of the IS provinces around the world. And, and this is the kind of centralized aspect of the IS propaganda machine and the primary source of where this, where this comes. The second aspect here is, is, is that these claims are picked up and reshared by uh, more peripheral kind of pro-IS channels and pages that are run by supporter networks. These normally are also kind of operating on a range of niche messaging apps and, and password protected chat servers online. Uh, and in the case of Kabul attack, you know, we were tracking this at the time uh, and, and as kind of is fairly usual for a high profile attack of this nature for IS, you know, supporters kind of mobilize. Uh, and in this case, we saw calls for online invasions of mainstream social pl- media platforms like Facebook and YouTube to to kind of spread the official news in their words, um, which is, as I say, it's kind of fairly normal practice. Third aspect, I'd say, is kind of and this is becoming, uh, I'd say, increasingly prevalent for supporters is regional or country specific pro IS outlets, which kind of translate the content. So we picked up versions of the claims in, in kind of a whole host of different languages, including English, but also Urdu, Aramaic, Hindi, Indonesian, kind of all over the world. And in that area, I'd say that these claims often end up staying online for longer than the original copies of the claim. You know, tech companies, automated detection tools might not be as effective uh, in these other languages. And then maybe in the fourth category, I'd say, uh, you know, on the larger tech platforms where, uh, you know, terrorists are not so densely concentrated as they are on these smaller platforms, you get more sanitized versions of of this kind of content appearing. Um, So, you know, the incriminating imagery and text is kind of blocked out in some way. All the content is misrepresented in a kind of objective way. So we're seeing things like, um, you know, prior networks presenting themselves as journalists, for example, or news organizations, or even sometimes security analysts. The mom explosion at Kabul airport was the start of a series of attacks by ISK. Colin says these attacks, which have been targeting both the Taliban and Hazara minorities, are attempts to destabilize the country and undermine the Taliban government. They'd like to show 
uh, the population that the Taliban's unable or unwilling to protect them in some cases. They've made sectarianism a major focus, and so entire minority groups feel vulnerable and not protected by the Taliban government. It's the same thing the Taliban did to the U.S. and ISAF forces for the last 20 years. Death by a thousand paper cuts to continuously use ambushes, IED attacks, assassinations to wear down the morale of the United States, ISAF, the Afghan government, Afghan National Security Forces. The tables are turned. Although the Taliban should be able to contain the rival ISK group, Colin doubts they'll be able to defeat them. Where ISK can surge some spectacular attacks from time to time, but they're they're not going to have the wherewithal to take over the country the way that the Taliban did, right? But they could certainly remain a problem in, in some of the provinces where they you know have a stronghold. Some of the intra-Afghan dynamics in those various communities over uh, along the Afghan border potential for recruitment, you know, what are some of the things that ISK could do to help bring fighters into into the organization? And it's interesting because a lot of talk when the Afghan government fell was around this issue of foreign fighters. Few, if any, people expect, you know, Europeans or Americans or Westerners to travel to Afghanistan in any significant quantity. But foreign fighters, in this case, are anyone from outside of Afghanistan. Um, and so Pakistanis, Iranians, Central Asians, Chechens, and others that may, over time, you know, feel that magnetic pull to this conflict zone and then reinforce the ranks of groups that include ISK, others as well. Charlie touched on this earlier, but let's hear more about how ISK use of the internet differs from that of the Taliban. Back to Arthur from Tech Against Terrorism. You know, most ISK or at least official ISK content comes via IS's, you know, global IS's uh, centralized official outlets. And these essentially channels that aggregate claims of responsibility and multimedia releases from IS all around the world, so including in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and globally. ISK content from from these channels constitutes really a small proportion of the content from all of the IS provinces around the world, uh, although this has kind of grown over the past year. Generally, these official channels are are private and can be accessed only uh, if you actually really need to reach out to to IS points of contact in order to access these channels. So the group advertises these points of contact for those wishing to gain entry into these spaces. Of course, this isn't an ideal scenario for IS. It's essentially a result of adversarial shift. So because of content moderation and online counterterrorism efforts, you know, they've been increasingly forced further and further underground as their public facing channels are shut down you know, fairly quickly, particularly if they're posting official IS content. So with IS being, you know, the official content being generally buried quite deep un- underground, uh, it's the supporter networks that are kind of playing a, a crucial role in disseminating this content more widely across the Internet, uh, particularly on the surface web. Um, So they're using a sophisticated kind of multi-platform approach. So spreading content across the internet, uploading their multimedia releases, you know, to as many as 100 online locations simultaneously. And you end up with with their videos being shared via long lists of links. So it's a bit like when you get uh, pirate copies of, of movies or TV shows online. Again, this is essentially a circumvention tactic. So they're attempting to retain the content's availability by spreading it as thin as possible across multiple platforms. I should say that they're also relying increasingly on traditional websites uh, for content hosting and sharing. And again, this is probably an adversarial shifting. Websites are it's obviously not a new phenomenon for terrorists to be using websites as something they've been doing since the early days of the internet. But, you know, we would say that probably because these larger tech platforms are, they have a lot of work to do, but they've got a lot better at moderating terrorist content. It's much more difficult, particularly for official IS accounts to operate freely on the larger tech platforms. So they're not reaching as wide an audience. 
And for that reason, you know, we think that this is partly why they're moving back to kind of traditional websites, because they're available on the surface web. And often, you know, they can be discoverable through search engine results. So separate to IS itself, IS Khorasan does have its own kind of semi-official media. So it's got its own semi-official outlet, which operates separately to the kind of centralized IS media apparatus and is, is you know, it's likely locally run. It's active mostly on messaging apps as well, but also uh, has been active on larger platforms like Facebook and Twitter. As It's released several videos independently from IS Central. Um, so it released you know, an 800-page book in August, focusing essentially on undermining the religious credibility of the Taliban. So comparing that to the Taliban, it's generally quite different. Taliban generally able to operate with much less sophisticated content moderation avoidance techniques. They're not having to do these long lists of outlinks or having private groups where you have to reach out to get access. They're heavily reliant really on Twitter for communication at the moment. Um, you know, and they're reaching a, a pretty massive public audience there as well into the hundreds of thousands. Twitter hasn't imposed a blanket ban on the Taliban, unlike other platforms. So, you know, that's really probably the main reason why they're, they're so heavily on there. The subject raises all sorts of questions about what lengths social media companies should be going to to stop extremist content spreading online. It's something tech companies continue to wrestle with, especially when it comes to the Taliban. As Arthur said, the Taliban has already been banned by the likes of Facebook, Clubhouse and BitChute, but they're still allowed to post content on Twitter. In fact, a Taliban spokesperson, Zabihullah Mujahid, has more than 371,000 followers and has used the platform to boast about the Taliban's military victories. So why do different tech companies have different guidelines? Charlie says the reason members of the Taliban can post on Twitter is because the platform's policy only takes down accounts that are actually inciting violence. Right around the fall of Kabul in August, I remember just hanging out on Taliban Twitter, as, as is my want, and seeing all of these guys changing their profile pictures and user bios and, and all that stuff, coming out as Taliban officials, people who have been on Twitter for a long time, but operating covertly and, and, and hiding away or shying away from the limelight, suddenly coming clean and saying, look, yeah, we're part of the Taliban. This is us and, and what's going on in Afghanistan now is this is the, the, the victory of the movement. And then there was restraint that there weren't calls for excessive violence or any violence made by the movement or made an official level, at least, by the Taliban. There were no calls for recrimination or collective punishment of former members of the ANDSF or Afghan government. And that is part of a, I, I don't believe that just to be a ruse on the part of the Taliban. I'm not going to sit here and say that I think the Taliban are, are good people. But I do think that the baked into the takeover of Kabul and everything that led up to that moment, and then the establishment of the Taliban's government in September, and its approach towards dealing with former uh, adversaries and, and so on, that was predicated on its ability to convince people that if it took over, it wouldn't kill everyone. It wouldn't kill all of its former opponents. And there was a very concerted effort to keep that as the organizational policy. Now, there's a whole massive array of instances of human rights abuses under the Taliban that have occurred just since August. Tons and tons and tons, not to mention the 
massive issues that remain about gender and so on. But when it comes to the specific issue of violence against former members of the government or former members of the ANDSF, while there have been cases of violations of the amnesty that was instituted by the Taliban, especially across the, the three months up to the fall of Kabul, there hasn't been a massive organization-wide violation of that amnesty policy. And I think that that really, really matters. That brings us back to this thing that, that is fundamental to insurgency and communication, anything that, that, that kind of hovers between those two concepts or those two issues, I guess, is that the things that are communicated by these groups, whether it's the Taliban or ISIS or extreme right-wing groups, they have to be based, at least to some degree, in reality. And the more based in reality that they are, the better or more effective, more impactful they stand to be. And I think the Taliban demonstrated and has demonstrated in the months since that, that, yeah, I mean, there have been violations. And this is just one small kind of sphere of potential violations that the Taliban could could fall into. But when it comes to this issue of amnesty and, and the ability that it had to collapse the ANDSF in the run-up to the fall of Kabul, all of which was mediated very intensively over Twitter, over Telegram, over WhatsApp, over radio. Uh, that was because, or in large part because, it had a very harsh policy towards violators of the amnesty. And, and it's all about trying to minimise that, that gap between what the Taliban is saying at an official level, an organisational level, and what the Taliban's rank and file are doing at a provincial level on a day-to-day basis. I want to bring Arthur back in here. He says there's all sorts of ethical and humanitarian concerns with moderating Taliban content online, especially since they're now running a country. In the same way on online, uh, removing Taliban content wholesale risks negatively impacting Afghans, uh, particularly when we're talking about information that is of, of public value. So this is something that Facebook's acknowledged, you know, with Taliban taking over official government accounts like the Ministry of the Interior uh, or the Ministry of Health. They're putting out messages that might be about more kind of mundane things like traffic uh, and, and also the COVID response. So actually, in Facebook's behalf, they have actually made exceptions to certain posts. So although there is a blanket ban on Taliban content there, they are allowing certain posts, you know, that aren't inciting violence and are kind of in the public interest to stay up. So Arthur, what is Tech Against Terrorism's stance on social media companies allowing Taliban content? Uh, Well, I mean, I think in general, our position uh, is that these decisions shouldn't be being made by private companies. You know, this is up to to democratically elected governments to, to provide guidance on this kind of thing. And really, you know, in that vein, we look to designation lists uh, as really the kind of foundation for for what should be done in terms of moderating these kind of organizations. So, you know, with that in mind, we recommend, generally speaking, that tech platforms do remove or restrict access to content which is produced by the Taliban uh, on the basis of its designation by a number of governments and the kind of inter- intergovernmental bodies. You know, and I should also say that just because the Taliban is now effectively a state actor, that shouldn't be necessarily something that stops us from removing Taliban content. There have been other instances of this. Donald Trump is, you know, the most obvious example, but also the IRGC from Instagram uh, and also the Myanmar military uh, from Facebook. As I said before, uh, we acknowledge the challenges with this specific case. We, we really follow a similar format to Facebook. Kind of three categories here. You know, One is content that incites violence or directs hatred against a particular group. 
Second is propaganda in support of the Taliban kind of project. Uh, and then third is content about the provision of essential public services. The first two categories we say should be taken down, but the third, I think, in certain instances should be allowed to remain up. And then also on your government point uh, and saying that, you know, that we are saying basically it should be up to governments as to who is allowed to speak online and who shouldn't be allowed to speak online. What, in in your opinion, do you think governments could do more of to provide clarity to tech companies as to what content should be removed and what content should stay online? Tech companies are in a very difficult position now, right? And I think this applies not just to Afghanistan, but to kind of moderating tech platforms that are essentially global in nature spanning you know multiple jurisdictions is extremely complicated for tech platforms and you know in this taliban instance it's a very chaotic situation with a complete lack of international consensus about what the taliban is you know before and after it's taken over afghanistan and so this lack of clarity is definitely not helpful so really i think what what needs to happen is for governments to have clear messaging about you know, what they actually perceive the Taliban to be. So, you know, either maintain a designation that they already have in place and clearly signal that that is what they're going to be doing. Second, designate the Taliban if if not already. Or third, recognize the Taliban and delist if applicable. As I say, it's not for us and it's not for for private companies to be to be making this calls really. This is for governments. Fence sitting is kind of creating a confused atmosphere. So what is life like for people living in Afghanistan right now? It's been around six months since the Taliban took over, and updates on the situation there barely make the headlines anymore. As we've said, the Taliban has gone from an insurgency to fighting a counterinsurgency against ISK. Despite not being recognized by many countries, it is now the de facto government. But what does that mean for the Afghan people? Here's Colin again. I don't think they're going to be an effective one, and I don't think they're going to be representative. You know, I think that they are going to try to secure political recognition from a handful of states that they deal with right now, including states in the Gulf. Um, Because, you know, when we think back to the previous Taliban government before 2001, um, there were a handful of states that recognized uh, the, the government. I think it was three three states. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of ties to the Gulf, obviously, the, the Taliban are essentially dealing with a situation where they're one foot in, one foot out. They are, you know, by uh, any definition, the current government of Afghanistan. Uh, however, countries aren't exactly lining up to recognize them as such. There's ongoing sanctions. In terms of the United States and how the U.S. deals with the Taliban, their minister of interior, Siraj Khani, has a $10 billion bounty on his head from the U.S. So how do you work with a country whose government includes people that are among the most wanted terrorists? Uh, and, you know, this is a major issue for the United States going forward. I don't know what's going to happen because, you know, at some point, Afghanistan has to become a recognized state in the international system. And if that happens with the Taliban in charge, then then so be it. But at some point, there's got to be, you know, a recognition that th- this, is a, this is a country that needs to be rebuilt. Um, and lumbering under sanctions is really only going to impact in a very negative way the Afghan people. The Taliban will find a way to survive like they always do, but ordinary Afghans are going to starve and suffer. And they are already. Colin says whilst the Taliban is now in control of Afghanistan, they're still a designated terrorist organization. Look, the leadership is smart. Um, you know, they are PR savvy. They understand the optics of all of this. And I think they're smart enough to say what they think the international community wants to hear in order to get what they want. And then they'll go about governing the way that their ideology dictates. That said, they've been pragmatic. I mean, 
mostly in ways that facilitate the group's operation. So ask anyone if drug trafficking is is un-Islamic, right? But they're a pragmatic group. It brings in so much money. They'll find a way to uh, rationalize that, right? And say, well, it's, you know, um, it's killing infidels and so, or whatever the, the, the flavor of the month is. Um, and so I expect this to be a group that says one thing and does another. I can only look at their actions, right? Words mean so much to me, but then when I see the group acting the way that we know the Taliban always acts, a tiger doesn't change its stripes. And so I don't expect a major kind of uh, overhaul. Anything we're seeing right now is largely cosmetic. I think that's a fascinating point. And I think also um, with regard to the sort of the PR element that you've said, how do you think the Taliban got so good uh, at portraying themselves online and offline? Because it's almost as if like the, the, the best PR machine is behind this. I don't know. I, I, I wish I had the, the uh, opportunity to ask them. I was in Doha in October and actually was in the same hotel as a bunch of the, the Taliban government, shared a couple of elevator rides with them, but it, it didn't come up. Let's just say that uh, at the time. You know, I think they've learned by experience. They are, they won. They, they defeated the United States and its allies, right? This is an insurgent group that fought for 20 years against all odds and prevailed. So, um, you know, this isn't some ragtag group, however others want to portray them. This is a smart, savvy, um, clearly an effective uh, insurgent group that's now tasked with governing a country. They've learned over time. It's been trial and error. Go look back at their propaganda in the early days and you know, it's evolved considerably. It's, it's quite more sophisticated, at least not only aesthetically, but in terms of content and reaching different audiences and kind of portraying themselves. They look like a professional, you know, when you see these guys showing up on the world stage and they get an audience with the leaders in China, Russia, all over the world. So uh, they do carry themselves, you know, one way, but at the same time, it wouldn't be inaccurate to call these guys a group of armed thugs. Look at the, the way that they carry out quote unquote justice in the very kind of draconian and heavy handed way that they approach governance. He says the impact of the Taliban takeover on the daily lives of Afghan people is tremendous. We're talking about life or death. And some of the stories that we hear from Afghanistan are heartbreaking with people feeling the need to sell their own children in order to uh, get money to eat. So, I mean, the worst of the worst, the situation there. And I think that's something where uh, you know, when we talk about the international community, there's got to be a sense of urgency to figure this out, to figure this out immediately. This isn't something that, you know, we need a white paper for. We need to get food to the people that need it. And, and we deal with the politics on the other side of it. There's people in the United States that think we shouldn't be dealing at all with Afghanistan because any help we offer to that country, we're then legitimizing, you know, the, the Taliban as a government. And, and my response is this is what losing a war looks like. Right. But that doesn't obviate us from our responsibility as humans to help people that are that are suffering and in need, especially when, if we're being honest, you know, the United States has played a a large role in a lot of the problems that Afghanistan has today. Yeah, the United States has done a lot of good things, too, um, but we've also made a lot of missteps. And, you know, I I was on a counter corruption team, so I got to see kind of firsthand um, how some of those kind of corruption related issues really distorted the economy and, and politics and society. Um, so this is going to take a, a long time to to address, and it's going to take a lot of money, resources, and sustained attention from the international community. And, and that's what's going to help the Afghan people. Tech Against Terrorism continues to monitor Taliban content online and is conscious of unnecessarily removing material that could harm the interests of Afghan civilians. 
A huge thank you to our guests, Charlie Winter and Colin P. Clark, and to Tech Against Terrorism's Arthur Radley for their input in today's episode. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.